welcome to Below the Line with Seb, Nolan, and Benke. This is a podcast where we talk about people who you may not know in the film industry because they work below the line. That means no directors, no actors, no producers, but rather editors and composers and production designers. And this episode, we'll be focusing on makeup artists, horror makeup artists, the best of the best. Not really. We're not, we can't focus on everyone because there's too much too too much talent in the makeup department, but we we chose a handful of really important makeup artists, including some that we just wanted to talk about because we really really like them. But before we get to the spooky tober season, Banke, do you have anything to tell us this weekend? Um, this week is um, it's a big week, you know. Obviously, we're in the middle of October. The best we're in the middle of the best season. You know, in the midst of watching all your horror movies, the movie, apparently, the movie of Oscar season, in quotes, whatever that means nowadays, just came out. The Trial of Chicago, the Chicago 7, directed and written by Aaron Sorkin. Now, this movie is... Now, let me stop you right there, because I feel like every time that you say the words Aaron Sorkin, you have to follow it with a Jesse Eisenberg, Mark Zuckerberg impression of him saying, Eduardo. <laughs> like, he, he, Aaron Sorkin is, you know, he's big, you know, he's a big deal. But, you know, he's been, he's been doing, obviously, mostly writing and started recently in directing with Molly's Game, which was not that good. The script was fine, but he's not a very competent director. So I was very excited to see this because oh. like yes, I was. I was decently excited to see this because Because he's not a competent director? I am I hearing that I was okay? <laughs> I was kind of excited to see his prog- his progression, you know? And you know, he had so much more, in my opinion, going for him in this in this one. He had this huge, huge cast, and he had a, uh, like, the historical event that he was chose, that he chose to write about, I felt like is kind of lends itself really well to make a really good movie about On the Slip. So, I was looking forward to this, and it is, like, even before any reviews came out, even before, like, I even saw this, I was kind of predicting that this movie would, ha- like, get be really, really big in the Oscars. It is like the movie, the type of movie that the Oscars would go after. It's historical, it's incredibly relevant because it's about protests and like the um, American response to protests and how we handle that. And it's also like just um, filled with tons of like past Academy Award winners, filled with tons of those scenes that you see in the Oscar clips. It's just that kind of movie, you know? So I was like, you know what? I'm excited to see this, just to assess its chances, all that kind of stuff. It's on Netflix. It is a verdict. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it is on Netflix, but- um, Get it, the verdict, because it's a movie about his trial. <laughs> mm. Mm. Ladies Except, and gentlemen, you know, um, Sam, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to flex my comedy about. here because I know you get you get intimidated by it. But sometimes I just gotta. I just gotta. 
I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how I'm going to take that one now. Cause I, I think I, I feel really insecure to ever make a joke for the rest of my life. Cause that was, that was, did you, did you plan that? That was, that was very good. That was very good. Let's give a shout out to Seb for that really fine, well-timed joke. Let's give a shout out to jokes. Let's give a shout out to jokes. Jokes. Yeah. Jokes are awesome. Jokes are, jokes are awesome. And they're funny. They are, they are funny. I want to I want to thank Most my mom and my parents mm-hmm. for always being supportive. I don't even know what to say. This was you won't believe this, but that was actually improvised. I didn't plan it. Like I, wow. I didn't plan wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean, you won it for an like an improv performance. That's Yeah. That's it rare. was all that's really improv. Rare. Said Aaron Sorkin well <laughs> accepting the speed <laughs> accepting the best screenplay. I didn't do for. I didn't, it, every, every ounce of directing I did on the set was all improv. I did not plan <laughs> anything in advance. I got there and um, was like, all right, guys, um, what's the plan? What's, what's we, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? And they're like, I thought you made those decisions. Like, no, I just write the script. I thought I could just like add my name onto the director, you know, just cause like, that's your job, right? He's like, um, hmm. And as, as you know, as I do be making a joke about that, it like low key feels like that in the same way Molly's game feels a little bit like just really sloppy. This movie is like strangely sloppy um, considering it's like a really well crafted screenplay just on a technical level. There's like a surprising amount of just slop and unclarity with editing and continuity i'm just i i was just sitting there and i was like why is this not good i i was like i just like this is it's just something's not like grabbing me about it and i don't want to give away too much about the movie because i do think it is worth the watch and it'll be just almost fun to watch just to like assess its Oscar situations and follow its path over the next few months. Cause I do think it's going to be really popular at the Oscars, but there's something a little bit muddled about its politics and its limitations of it being a movie almost in that it kind of shies away of bringing too much detail in the places that you'd wish there was a little bit more, more detail in the opposing sides of the arguments that are in the movie. It kind of just it gives you all the facts and expects you to go along with it. And I find that a little bit surprising considering it's a movie about a trial and that the two sides are very well illustrated, you know? And it's not that I'm saying I don't necessarily agree with the politics, but it feels very flat and just a little boring just because of how one-sided the good guys are in this movie. So what are your thoughts on this? My thoughts. I think it was fine. It's okay. It's 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 not super special. Like <laughs> if you go into this um looking for entertainment, which is not like saying like oh that's not like a incorrect way of approaching a movie like that's a completely valid way that like most people approach movies because of entertainment you know it will do that 
and it will even do more than that because it is it is trying to do something more than just entertain you and it has and it is there is something admirable about it that it comes with trying to shed a light into something that was an unjust affair you know you like go back and try to correct the injustice in a way yeah the proper retelling of that story that could have been yeah that was incorrectly handled Mm -hmm. that being said it's very it's a very competent movie technically the dialogues are are good the pacing is very good you always know what the stakes are you always know what's happening it does all very good but it is a movie that doesn't provoke you a lot it's just like it's very like one-sided in who are the good guys who are the bad guys which i think isn't i don't think it should have been as easy and as forgivable forgiving (laughs) of its characters like all of your character all of the characters are perfect characters and their flaws are not really flaws that like trouble the viewer they're just flaws that like you 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 agree with and like they just get them into trouble but you like agree that they should be getting into trouble because it's like respectable to have those flaws and whatever they get too passionate about the movement and everything and especially now i get like protests and violent protests are like an important topic in the us as well as in other countries you know and i think it's not just a one-sided issue and i think it also makes me wonder like just this year um, like whatever you agree with, I, I'm not saying I disagree with its politics, um, but I think the discourse is much more complex than the movie makes it seem like. And it's very forgiving and it's, I think, to a certain degree taking advantage that they are not taking advantage, probably not, not, not actively, but like it does, I think, take advantage that they are white men. And it's like a historical issue. So we can all agree that it was like, okay, <laughs> what it led up to and it, that it wasn't their fault. And this was like very unjust. Whereas today that we have protests, like violent protests concerning Black Lives Matter or I in Mexico, some years ago protests regarding like feminist movements um, that got very violent as well. <laughs> Ever, like there's a lot more complexity to that than just like, I mean, in the public's eye, it's a lot more debated so that's not necessarily a bad thing because it could be something that convinces you like, look, if white men did it, it's okay. Why, like, what's the difference if women or black people do it, you know? Um, but there is some one dimensionality to the whole affair. And I feel like it, it should have been more impartial specifically because it's a courtroom. It kind of gives you all the answers. It kind of like always wants you to agree with it. Um, and it's not, unashamed of doing that and a controversial ending may i say because it makes it a feel-good movie about something that isn't really something you should be feeling good about it's such an odd moment in sorkin's filmography i think we can all observe that he's a master of the adaptation and a master of the courtroom drama within that um but oftentimes the critique of sorkin's films are that they heighten the details too much maybe or accentuate or or exaggerate the details and what i'm hearing from you two i haven't seen it yet what I'm hearing from you two is that it's actually the opposite this time around. He doesn't embellish enough. He doesn't uh, do enough with going past the details into the minutia. Um, and he stays at a rather, uh, again, dare I say, cause I haven't seen the movie, but he stays at almost a neutral standpoint. Mm-hmm. 
for a movie that, again, we joked about it coming out during spooky season, but it is an incredibly divisive time for our country and a very relevant time for this film to come out. And the discourse on this film um, and its sort of stance, again, with the politics, it, it, it stance almost outside or trying to remove itself from the movie's message. It's so odd mm -hmm. for Aaron Sorkin. It's so yeah. odd for that ensemble cast. It's, it's odd of Netflix, who is releasing very oftentimes some of the most provocative and controversial films. Um, I think we can all agree that there's not many other studios who would let Robert Pattinson do so many accents in so many years <laughs> with the same company as Netflix. But <laughs> they're not shy. They, they, they don't shy away from those things. So it's an interesting, I, I think, diversion from the patterns of Sorkin and the patterns of Netflix. And from, again, a, a beautiful, wonderful cast. Um, that it sounds like may have just been misplaced. Like there's, there's a lot to debate on it, you know, and you can debate that it's not as one dimensional that maybe I'm like oversimplifying it is, but it can't get into like the nitty gritty without <laughs> being very <laughs> long about it. And I've already talked about it for quite some time. It's, I think there's something <laughs> about the Aaron Sorkin like thing is that it's like people talk really fast and they respond to each other really quickly. And it's a, the, the dialogue is really rapid and it's just like to the point where they'll, they'll be talking so quickly at each other and it'll just build up and build up and then just kind of like land into like a comedic moment, you know? I feel like that happens a lot with various things that he's done, you know? And it, it works a lot of the time because it's like, it's fun to like see people in movies talk really fast. And it's like really unique way of speaking where they're, everyone's really technical and really clear, but they're also, also really talking fast and in this like exciting way. But um, something about, you know, so like this, this Aaron Sorkin humor that's found in a lot, of, that's like found in a lot of his dialogues is still in this movie because it's kind of this, it's kind of like his thing. Of course he's gonna put in a movie and it doesn't totally work out because it feels very insincere. Like all every time there's like a joke or like even something I'm supposed to laugh at that's not serious. I'm like, does Aaron Sorkin take what he's making seriously? It feels, it's just like his style, which I'm like surprised about. It just strangely isn't lending itself well to this just because doesn't feel like a movie you should be making these jokes and it feels out of place within the movie even that he's making the this like humor out of the situations these characters are in it has it's like it has like a tonal balance issue so in and conclusion trial of the chicago seven didn't sit very well with benke or me we we think <laughs> it's okay it's not our favorite film I personally think it could have been more out there. And I, ho I, I wish this wasn't like a default Oscar contender as it is, like even before it came out, like mm -hmm. it doesn't even matter that it's getting mixed reviews. Like it's, it's, still, it's still a front runner. It'll yeah. probably win Although, some big award. It, um, it does and... currently stand at over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, yeah, but it's, like, so, it's, a very, it's like it's an at incredibly, 70 like... something in Metacritic or something. <laughs> It's, inc it's an you know, incredibly, Metacritic like, passable movie. Like, it's just, it's fine, you know? I didn't hate it after everything I said. I, there were parts I liked. I, it's passable, you know? And it's like, that's just kind of what Rotten Tomatoes is. It's like, it's a ton of people that thought it was good. What have you watched 
this week, Lately. this last mm-hmm. two weeks, Nolan? Well, I have to say, again, emphasis on Halloween and spooky season. This is our Halloween episode, everybody. Mm-hmm. If you want to be eating candy corn while you listen to this podcast, if you want to, uh, if you want one of our hosts slash guests to suddenly disappear in the middle of the episode, just let us know. Um, it's it's very easy for one of us to disappear when the other hasn't seen the movies we're talking about. So, uh, Seb and Becky are about to disappear right now. I'm I'm the only one to have seen the movie that we're talking about next, which is the Sundance favorite, Lee Isaac Chung's Minari, uh, about a Korean American family uh, trying to find their way. Uh, with a new farm, a new plot of land in Arkansas. Listen, let's talk about this movie. I see in Minari, and you can see it when you watch it, you can see where a whole host, a whole generation of filmmakers will watch this movie, and this will be their movie. This will be their praying to the altar. This will be their heroic moment, their epiphany. Um, Because a movie like this, um, and again, I think we talked about Nomadland, haven't seen that movie, but the way you guys described it, a lot of slow characterization building up to bigger moments in the third act. I think those types of movies really have powerful effects, especially on um, people and viewers who haven't been accustomed to those types of movies. For me, I feel like I've been fed so much. Um, I love A24, I love indie films, but I feel like I've been fed so much of those over the last few years. Minari Mm -hmm. doesn't seem in any way special Um, And then there's the argument of, well, is it distinguishable or original? Yes, it is. I think it's distinguishable enough. I think it's original enough. I enjoyed watching it. And I never felt at any point like it was derivative of something else that I had seen before. But there isn't, there's just, for me, there is an impact in this movie um, because I think the audience it's reaching for is maybe people who are completely enlightened by this experience of the small family, the indie, the um, finding the American dream, the, oh, American dream doesn't actually turn out the way we wanted it to, but we still have each other. And though I haven't seen that movie 1,500 times, I feel like I've seen the semblance of that story 1,500 times, especially when it comes out of A24 and their marketing Mm -hmm. can be pretty one note sometimes. And let's be honest, the way that they distribute films and release films can be pretty one note sometimes, even in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I feel like I'm just trashing A24 right now, but it's it's more (laughs) that... You feel like, or just, you are. It's 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 more that the A twenty four label, um, people start to get very very accustomed to that label. Either it's going to be some slow building horror film, some slow building um, coming of age indie, or something totally out there. Green Room, Uncut Gems, um, what Spring Breakers was one of their first movies. Um, mm-hmm. The Lobster. So I think that there's a very easy, almost hole to fall into when you start a film like this. Uh, of it's going to be just another A24 indie coming of age film. Unfortunately for me, I was not able to dig myself out of that hole entirely. Still enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I thought the child actor, Alan Kim, one of the best child performances I've seen uh, in my lifetime. I really thought that the, the child in this, this is his first performance. It is phenomenal. I wow. do think it will get some Oscar attention. Um, I do think Stephen Yun as the father will get some Oscar attention. He is so subdued. Um, it is, it is incredible. It is an incredible performance. Um, I think everybody in the family does a great job. Um, I think some of the photography, especially towards the latter half, there's a particular sequence near the end that if you've seen the film, you'll know what it is. Uh, absolutely breathtaking photography. But the idea, not even the movie itself, the idea of the movie is probably the easiest thing to 
kind of knock yourself down for because you come into this movie with a certain expectation um, and it delivers that expectation. And I never felt that it delivered more than that. Is there a problem with that? No. And there's no problem with making that movie. It has a signature voice. Lee Isaac Chung, the writer-director, I feel has a very bright future ahead of him. He's only made three or four other features. Um, and I feel like he's just getting started. You're coming off of Sundance and, and all of the other film festivals he's done so well in. A shout out to the Heartland International Film Festival for providing the virtual screening for me. For me personally, they emailed us. Only, emailed for, us only for below, you. Below so the thank line. You. And they said, you know, Seb and Benke have been watching so many movies behind your back. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're going to give you, we're giving you Minari individually. I was like, wow, that's so great. Don't, don't um, tell any of them that you're doing this so, at all. So if I if, had to if, find honestly, out. If any, I had to find out through right. Letterboxd, which just hurt. Yeah, hurt. that's a that's a joke. It hurts. That's a that's a it's joke. Like finding out, finding out your ex girlfriend's new boyfriend over Instagram or Snapchat or something like that. Exactly. You have to see over Letterboxd that I'm watching Minari. That's so honestly, <laughs> no. if there's any fault in the it movie, felt... it may just be my own. It may be my own expectations mm, and the fact that yeah. I feel like I've seen movies like this, especially from A24. From A24. Yeah. And it's right. like this, this, this brand that they're like, it's getting this, this brand of movies that they're trying to create. It's like, mm -hmm. it was going very, very well. And mm -hmm. at, at like, especially around Moonlight, like they literally got like the peak of like what any right. studio would want, which is, which is right. to like win best picture. And like, I assume because of that and because of like how well regarded Moonlight was, got a ton of money from it. And yeah. like, They've kind of, you know, they've they've had like every year they've had like a thing, you know, a, a a fairly big thing. But it feels like lately it's been going like like dwindling a little bit just because of their own limitations. Like they're just kind of like, okay, we we did we did we did this, you know. It feels like they're doing the bare minimum. And like you said, there seems to be a lot of issues with them distributing and marketing their movies, especially like, you know, if they're, cause these movies, like they're not, not a ton of people are gonna see them. They're not released in like every single movie everywhere, like a big studio movie would be. So they really have to depend on word of mouth, award buzz and all that kind of stuff to really get anything substantial money wise, or even like just to, for critics to notice it. And like, it feels like they were, they, they've kind of thought it was gonna happen just for them because of how successful Moonlight was for them. And now it's like, they're not putting in this extra effort of making sure it gets distributed properly and it's just known about. Like I, it's, it's like not the, the, the conversation around like recent, a24 movies are just like not really there that i'm surprised that if they you, aren't you know if you would if you would wanted to see first cow you know where were you going to go and where were you going to yeah hear about it? absolutely yeah i think again i, think I recommend a, minari i i do recommend the movie i think if if like you're talking about you you've been accustomed to the kind of a24 not scheme but pattern of, of marketing these specific types of movies it may be a little too one note 
Um, but as a movie in itself, if you're excited to see Minari, that story, if you're excited to see those actors, if you're excited to see a movie about the Korean American experience, which we know we don't see all the time, you should absolutely see this movie. This will absolutely be one of your favorite movies of the year. Um, and to be honest, if I rewatch it, it might be one of my favorite movies of the year. Right. I think, I think it has to do with the fact that A24 is building a brand unlike, like, unlike other studios have. It feels more like an animation studio like Pixar or Ghibli because it, and it has like its own thing and its own standards of quality that come with it even though not all their movies are great, but you know, it tries to do that and it's like how people perceive it now. And by doing that, you'll inevitably get repetitions and it will become repetitive at some point before they can manage to like realize like, okay, people are tired of this now because they're like <laughs> trying to repeat, not repeat, but like continue that same brand they've been building that's been very successful for them, right? And I think maybe yeah. this is, to me, it feels like we're starting to enter that A24 zone of we need something new now <laughs> that Pixar had, yeah. like, starting yeah. the 2010s. Makeup in, in, in horror is a big, it's a big, big thing, as you all know. <laughs> Without makeup artists and VFX artists and makeup in horror, our lives would be completely different. At least mine would be, because I'm a big horror fan. And a mm. lot of iconography we have today horror iconography come from these masters whose names you may not know but whose work you definitely do as it is <laughs> custom yeah! in, this, <laughs> in this podcast so we're going to talk about a handful of people from different eras and we're going to go i guess chronologically so we have like a good mm -hmm. sense of like where things led to uh we're yes. going to start with classic classic hollywood guys who are we talking about today regarding classics well, classic universal monsters we'll be talking about jack pierce well first of all just to kind of like set the stage universal um kind of the og of all of like american horror pretty much and they had a run of coming out with movies that like frankenstein the mummy the wolfman bride of frankenstein all those all those movies, The Invisible Man, like all those kinds of movies, all in this like run of like a decade-ish um, in I guess the 1930s and early 40s. No. And um, those movies are like the building blocks of uh, the popularity of like American horror movies, I would say for like, I mean, conti continuously, like it's, it's it, you still feel their influence all over the place. I mean, they just made a new Invisible Man movie this year. And these movies are also incredibly VFX makeup heavy because the the thing, the scary thing about them all are like the creature designs. It is like what you're supposed to be scared of, what you're supposed to remember, what's gonna be on the poster, what's gonna be, what's gonna be like the thing. The title of the movie is the creature and you need to have a look, a look that's gonna make you remember that's <laughs> gonna make you like actually really scared when you're watching the movie and we can thank Jack Pierce for this. Jack Pierce was the head of the makeup department 
for this subsection of Universal Studios for when like they're like his own little mini studio for them for their monster movies. And Jack Pierce is credited and is like he is the guy that created these iconic makeup, this like iconic looks for the creatures and Frankenstein, the mummy, and the wolfman. And you know, it's this was a he kind of came like brought in the concept of like just like something like spending a lot of time on like making a creature look realistic, I guess. You know, he would spend hours of like grueling hours on like of like just putting on the makeup onto these actors just to look the part, you know? He would build facial, like the first time he like building facial parts out of like rubber and cotton and that kind of stuff. Yes. Like it's kind of hard to talk about horror without like talking about horror makeup without talking about him because he was just like the original. Like he was like the one who kind of made it a thing to put in effort and money and time into makeup because he knew how important it was to make a look and how to make something memorable and how to scare people in a horror movie. I, th- I love those movies so much. And I think um, too, I, I knew Jack Pierce before I knew Jack Pierce because there's a famous photo of him with Boris Karloff in one of those, like you say, very uh, generic Jack Pierce, 8 a.m., the third of nine hours doing my makeup on an actor. <laughs> and it was him applying the Frankenstein makeup to Boris Karloff. And I found that picture in a book that I owned and I cut it out and I put it as part of like a horror film collage that I was building as mm. a kid. So I had had the Jack Pierce, Boris Karloff two shot of, of Jack Pierce doing makeup for a long time. And like you say, it's really hard to extricate makeup from horror in general. Even before it came to America and Universal Studios, the German expressionists were the first ones to do horror really in a feature length in the 1920s. And it was all about makeup and it was all about how much you can risk the distortion of the human face uh, and, and bodies with makeup. And Jack Pierce, obviously probably the first American uh, or, or, or known American makeup artist, we should say, to really make that statement of makeup is horror and you can't really separate the two. Okay, you know, uh, one incredible fact about Jack Pierce is that to his last breath, he claimed that not only he did, but his work, best work was the invisible man, but no one ever believed him because no one saw it. Spooky. Can we get a round of applause? For jokes today, like <laughs> Seb's jokes today. What are you doing? Seb's joke. What are you? What, what are, are you drinking, drinking in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> are you drinking wow. comedy hot? Okay, are you okay. drinking um, comedic elixir? <laughs> wow. Okay. Anyways, no. Uh, but he actually did Invisible work. I was man. like, I was like checking right now if he did work in it, and he did do the makeup, but he mm. wasn't credited. <laughs> I just want to. I, I just want to reinforce, reemphasize. Frankenstein. Isn't Frankenstein so cool? Like, I don't have anything, like, smart to say about it. It's just, like, like, our idea, like, this isn't the Frankenstein, like, people think Shelly... What's yeah, Shelly Duvall. Shelly Duvall. Shelly Duvall. Frankenstein. Shelly Duvall is back. Shelly Duvall's Frankenstein. <laughs> I was gonna Venus say Shelly Duvall. Uh, Mary, Mary Shelly. Mary Shelley had like 
Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a Frankenstein we know today, but it's not. It wasn't green. It wasn't anything. It was. I mean, it was something. You know, like it's. It's like a mix of parts and whatever. But like the the Frankenstein we know and see in our like Halloween bags and accessories is Jack Pierce's Frankenstein. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. No one is <laughs> I showing have a, a copy of copying. the book with me today. <laughs> So we're going to check and see if Seb is lying <laughs> on the podcast. Oh, Seb, according, I, sometimes you have to quote Mary Shelley like scripture, especially in Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. I'm not lying. It became like that. It had like, it's, 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 it's designed no, are... by Jack Pierce. It wasn't like that in the original, <laughs> like it. Okay, so no, then, okay, okay. I believe you, Sam. I believe you. If you really read Frankenstein, if you really read it, who's the main character? Yeah. What's if his you name? really read it, what happens on page 228, third paragraph, second line? Hmm? You know, the main character is the friends they made along the way. Mm. Oh my god. Fuck. Okay, jury's out. Jury's out on Chicago 7. Jury's out on Frankenstein, the book. Seb definitely read it. Jury's out on Shelley Duvall's Frankenstein. Um, I've heard heard Bride of Frankenstein is better than Frankenstein. Is that true, Nolan? Do you agree with that? I don't don't think so. People people be saying that. People be saying that from time to time. Um, It's it's certainly a notable moment in in horror. Personally, you can't beat Frankenstein for me. And the reason why is because... Uh, the five-minute introduction where the man walks out of the curtain and pretty much addresses the audience and says, duh, this is scary, guys. Don't uh, <laughs> don't show your kids. Don't show your mistresses. Like, watch this by yourself. <laughs> Men and only. watch it in the, in, in the daytime. And, and don't, <laughs> like, don't, don't do any Ouija board stuff while you're watching it. That sequence to me, I've always wanted to remake that in any movie I do, <laughs> horror, comedy, action, just the idea that you have to come out before your own movie and say, guys, this is scary. <laughs> that is such that is such power. That is such raw power. Wait, but really? On, but like, why are we comparing the two? They're both masterful, masterful movies. Both um and, and Son of Frankenstein as well. Although I guess we're getting into hammer films at that point. But it's yes. really hard, I think, to to compare them or say one's better than the other. Can oh, I talk oh, about nice. Jack Pierce for a little bit more? Yeah, are you going to talk yes. about how he was an asshole? Can we? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, he God, was an another asshole. Another white man on our podcast and another asshole. It's almost another, like there's a really hmm, that's, interesting That's pattern. weird. Hmm. <clears throat> that's um, weird. Well, to go on, off on a little bit what you're saying, he did create, like, the bolts in the head and just, like, just, like, the concept of, like, the big head and, like, the stitches and all that. Like, it's very, all these, like, really specific things that are like on his face and about like his physicality are like his, are like Jack Pierce's thing. And like Frankenstein alone is like impressive that like, it's like this guy is the one that did it. But you know, he did this, the same thing for like a lot of these other, these other monsters that he created. But he's also like, he was known as like a huge asshole. Like he was, he was mean to like everybody and like, I'm not, I'm, obviously, I'm not going to say, like, well, rightfully so, because he was really good. Like, no, no, no one has an excuse to act this way. But, Except like, Stanley Kubrick, of course. We all know that. Uh, yeah, of course. You know, going again, back to Stanley Kubrick, like we always do. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Continue, Benke. 
<laughs> we may have to like, change the name of this podcast from below the line to above the law because that's what every white man on our podcast thinks that they are. <laughs> they think that they're above, they really think that they're above common decency and respect for their peers. It's disheartening. So much. And I mean, like, you see this a lot in like Hollywood where it's like there's a person who they know how important they are to a movie or a studio. And, you know, he was. Like, yes, he is, like, a below-the-line person. But Jack Pierce was, like, was regarded as, like, the best, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, make a monster movie. Get Jack Pierce on it. It's going to be great. And he could, you know? It, he had that ability to make a monster movie good because of his makeup effects. And his he does have a big impact. But it's like, I, he, I'm just reading... When I was doing research, I just reading all these really nasty stories about him in... And how just like just his like treatment of the actors that he was working on alone. Like there's someone, I think it was for the Wolfman, but somebody the the guy who like plays the Wolfman, who he was spending all this time on like working on his face, I think he was using an iron to like kind of like put like to like attach these like rubber parts of the mask onto his face essentially. But the guy was like, he's literally trying to burn me on purpose. And like, it was like a known thing that it was like, there was this huge, there was this like feud between them. And like, he took, like in that case, he like took advantage of his situation by literally like being like, okay, you're under my control. I'm burn your face real quick here. Hold on. In the end, after about 20 years of working for the studio, he... Um, he was like fired in the late 40s because, because I mean, people say that just he refused to use this new material of like foam, I think it was, foam latex, just for, just for, to use right. for makeup, just because he thought it was, um, you know, he just thought it like wouldn't look good and it wasn't like part of his craft, even though the studio was like, um, hey, this will like help you make it faster and it'll help us save a lot of time and money. And he's probably here like, well, you can't rush art. You can't like, you, you, how dare you even suggest something against the way I've been working. I've been helping your movies work, you know? And that's like the kind of tensions I can kind of assume that were going on within this. Cause it just seems like he's the kind of person to get like really touchy about this stuff. And you know, they're probably slowly taking away some control that he was having. He's like, what, you know what, fine. And you know, it just landed with him eventually getting fired from it. But that again, he was fired after working on like these huge, huge movies and his, his influence is like, like a lot of people describe, like it's hard to like really describe what his influence was for just like, how we treat makeup and how we look at the importance of makeup in the in the horror genre in America. I think everything from Freddy Krueger to even today, The Nun. <laughs> All of the uses of practical makeup. You laugh because The Nun is just a terrible movie, but we all know it stems from from Rick Baker and those early Universal Monster mm. films uh, and, it's... and then heading towards... And it's an incredible look for the character. Like that's like one of the most like incredible, in my opinion, like it sticks in your memory, like mm -hmm. a lot more than like most rec like recent horror um, monsters. Mm -hmm. 
um yeah. which is saying yeah, a lot because there's it. a lot of there's a lot of monsters coming out and it's a really really good one like the nun is just fucking scary when she looks at the fucking camera and she's just staring at you so it's scary like that sheer, like, it's just like pure terror yeah it, it was like two scenes she was in in like the conjuring <laughs> 2 and it was enough for her to get a spinoff you know like, <laughs> like it, it's a fucking cool character i stand the nun she created a movement it was her it's all her Everything in history can be traced back to She's a pious, guys. She's pious. She believes in a higher power. Mm, What a great role model for our children. Uh, Millicent Patrick is probably the the opposite (laughs) of Jack, in which she was not assholing. She was assholed by an asshole. She Mm. did... She's like her most famous work. She did a lot of things. She was a Disney animator, a colorist. Uh, she did, she acted as well. But we're going to talk about today her design for the Creature of the Black Lagoon, which is probably her crowning achievement, but for which she was uncredited for. Want to talk? She did also help do the Night on Ball Mountain sequence in Fantasia. Might have to be her most crowning work for me. Okay, yeah, that's completely fair. That's completely fair, yeah. <laughs> I would absolutely take the Night on, Ball, Night, on Ball Mount, Night on Ball Mountain sequence from Fantasia uh, and Coraline, since we're talking spooky season. That's virtually all of the animation that I would take with me to my grave. Um, and then, of course, like my neighbor Totoro. Right. Okay, Done. thank you. Thank you. I was thank you. Say. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Mm. Yes, yes, you're welcome. And yeah. she also is credited now for designing the, the Creature of the Black Lagoon, which was a whole suit. <laughs> Just like one whole suit and then with like things attached. And she went on tour to promote the movie being like the woman that... Wait, what's the... The woman... Wait, it was the It was the beauty that created the beast. Right. <laughs> which is just yeah. an awful, awful thing to do. <laughs> Right. Yeah, an that's an awful line. thing to do. But then even more awful was um the head of the makeup department, Bud Westmore. Bud Westmore was the head of the studio's makeup department. So she went on the tour. This was too much for some reason for Bud Westmore. He didn't want to get overshined by her. And this kind of like she he he went against what the like the tour and everything. Um, they even changed the tour to be the beauty who lives among the beasts, but that wasn't enough. Anyways, he made sure that she was uncredited and he received all the credit for the movie for designing the creature until mm. half a century later <laughs> when it was exposed. He was exposed and then overthrown by Millicent Patrick and she received two credit um, oh, because it is not also a very... Bud Westmore canceled. Everyone canceled Bud. <laughs> Bud Westmore exposed. Yeah, and that, that sucks. Him. Like, what the fuck? But yeah, no, it's an incredible. And, it's an incredible suit, and like, it it's waterproof. <laughs> it was. It was. There was two suits because it was one actor for the water sequences, and then there was another the actor water, for the above water. And yeah, it's a very, I mean. The, uh-huh. It's like a, it's a whole suit, right? Like it's, it's like not it, this like makeup 
what stemmed from like just on the face you know this is like so this is like so obvious what i'm saying but it's like what stemmed from like just like face makeup like that was might have required for something like dracula and frankenstein is like developed into this like imagine like putting all this work that you're putting into the face that we were talking about Jack Pierce is spending hours on doing to like an entire suit, you know? It wasn't like something you could just like zip up in the back. Like it was like, I can imagine like an incredibly complex like costume that, you know, it would took probably hours to like mold around you and like figure out how that, figure out how that works. And that alone is like insane, but the, how it just, how it looks too, it's like, it's, so influential and like in this like I feel like you see things that look like how it does like where it combines this it gives like a monstery look to like a sea animal you know like I feel like you see that so much in horror but like obviously like horror is like has progressed you know from just like as technology has gotten better and like and as like prosthetics have gotten better to like something beyond just like face stuff. It's like an entire like physical costume that people have like had to put on to like play the part. And I, I'm pretty sure that Creature Black Lagoon is like one of the first in this like, in this like thing that she started essentially. You know what I love about this um, suit specifically is that the creature is it's a, it's a hard creature to do because it's both a creature, it's a creature that's very, very often on camera, right? So right there, you you have like problems because it's your monster, right? And this isn't like, like just from this movie, right? A lot of classic monster Hollywood universal movies have their creature like in the forefront of the camera. But like usually you try to like, you know, always like not show the monster and et cetera, right? So as a makeup artist, or you have to create a suit that is both enough like visually compelling for it to become an icon that you can recognize that you can like enjoy having on screen but that even when it's on screen so much of the time it's still frightening you know to like it, it maintains that fright oh, yeah. and yeah. also because it's a, it's a, it's a one of those monsters like frankenstein that is it, it, it's the story is based the, the creature of the black lagoon is based on beauty and the beast right so there's also a like a double Thing you have to work of it both being scary but not being too scary so you can also like empathize with the monster exactly. but also not do it too light i think one of the first um versions of the monster was too pretty <laughs> so they had to add mm. monstery gills and stuff like a lot of the extra um fins to make it even more intimidating you know mm -hmm. so it's a really interesting interesting monster and it's done incredible it's 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 quite specific like it's just it's so cool <laughs> like yeah. for lack of a better word it's just so cool also fun fact you know the creature of the black lagoon story started because in a party during production of citizen kane with orson orson wells who? um gabriel Oof. figueroa who is mm. who is you, sorry, you may not know who Orson Welles is, but it doesn't matter. Um, Gabriel Figueroa, though, you know who he is. He's a famous Mexican cinematographer. Oh, um, him. oh right, yeah, right, of course. And he did a lot of, like, classic Mexican films, like The Young and the Damned, 
enamorada, etc. He was like, he told the producer of the black, like, which eventually became the Black Lagoon of like a story of like Amazon, like an Amazon and Phoebe and race that was like mix of human and fish. And the producer was like, damn, so that 10 years later, he still remembered that. And he was like, you know what? I'm gonna make a movie about that. Isn't that great? You know, that. Mexico is giving the best things to the world. Mm. Yeah. So next up, we go from the classic Hollywood monster movies to the 1970s with one of the people you must be excited to talk about. I'm very excited to talk about him. His name is Dick Smith. He worked in many movies like The Godfather, Amadeus, but also in very merry horror movies like The Exorcist. And it's like, like when you think of horror makeup, who do you think of? If not the girl from the heart, the right. exorcist. Linda Blair. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um to to talk like Dick Smith is um he's huge in just kind of stray from horror for a little bit. Um he's huge in the makeup world and that he um is like one of one of like the biggest people in like aging prosthetics you know adding makeup prosthetics to give age to actors and to you know so they could perhaps play um both like a character when the character when they were younger and when they were older like f marie abraham and amadeus or just like the, the actor playing somebody many decades older than they actually are and um which he did for marlon brando and for Max von Sydow in The Exorcist. You know, like The Exorcist is like the big makeup movie with Linda Blair, right? But it's yeah. also the Max von Sydow who is like, I don't know, like 30 something and when the movie came out is playing a character like many, many decades older than that. And it looks, I mean, I, I like it looks like what he looks like, I mean, what he did look like a few years ago before he died, honestly. Like it, it's it's incredible how good and realistic it looks. And you know, a lot and some of it's his performance, obviously, and being able to portray somebody that is many decades older than he is and like the physicality of it all. But like the makeup is so is so important to that. And it's like it's really incredible how detailed it is. And you know, you don't think of like like stereotypically like makeup you know, to be something that's, like, trying to look realistic. It's, like, you're just trying, especially with this, like, horror stuff, it's, like, you're trying to make something look crazy and different and something that we've never seen before. But sometimes, like, the stuff, like, making somebody look like an actual old person when they are, when they're younger is where this, like, where, like, real, real impressive craft lies because of how realistic it looks and how they're even able to fool a lot of people into thinking that they were actually this age. Um, another really, really famous example of what he did was for Marlon Brando in The Godfather, who is also, um, you know, despite it being like his, probably his, like one of his most famous roles, he did not, Marlon Brando did not look like that in, when he was like, when, when The Godfather came out, like he, they put, um, they, they put these, well, like for the first time they use like only eye makeup in, in, in Marlon Brando's face to kind of add this like age look around his eyes and also put a rather than like again rather than creating like prosthetics on the outside of the face he had him 
put something inside his mouth to create this droop effect for to like basically make him look like an older person than he actually was and it was really successful so much to the point where I feel like there's a lot of people who especially like now like many decades have passed since the Godfather think like that's how that's what he actually looked like it like fooled tons of people especially new people like watched this movie recently and say like wow that's just what it looked like I guess and he's really good in it you know yeah well I think beyond mentioning I think it's obligatory when we're talking about a horror makeup in an episode to bring up whoever did Linda Blair's makeup in The Exorcist uh some of the most iconic of course like we've been talking about um but also as Benke mentioned earlier part of our talk today about the art of makeup and how the mystique of it is changing with CGI and computer-generated imagery. Uh, definitely aging and de-aging is part of that as well. Uh, the Irishman, anybody, using a lot of uh, not practical effects and rather CGI to do those techniques. Um, and so there's a lot of respect for Dick Smith for being very um, ostentatious and, and very out there with his makeup for people like Linda Blair. Uh, and Marlon Brando again, not very subtle makeup. I mean, there's a there's a lot going on there, especially even with the tissues and mouth that kind of give him that bulldog look um, that Brando famously worked with Dick Smith to do. Um, but then there's also a lot of subtleties when your specialty is is aging and de-aging, unless you're going over the top, like you're doing Tilda Swinton 70 years in advance for the Grand Budapest <laughs> Hotel. You have to replace <laughs> someone much older. Um, but most of the time, it's it's subtle changes. And again, the prescience of uh, an example of, of Max von Sydow, who, who grew up and, and grew, even though he died, I think, last year or earlier this year, he grew to look like his character did. And that 1973 work was just absolutely astonishing. So it's the subtleties that with time become a lot more prescient and a lot more appreciable, um, are able to be appreciated when you see these actors um, age into what their makeup kind of foreshadowed. Even the realism of it all even comes to play in the exorcist because it's, it's it's a huge departure of course there's decades between um for Millicent patrick and jack pierce but there's a huge departure from camp you know and doing like benke was saying something that's completely different to a monster that is frighteningly real <laughs> you know like it's a little girl and it's just a demonic little girl. And she has, of course, a lot of extra stuff, you know, but she's a human. She's not a monster. She's a human. And she is like, the, even the makeup itself is like super realistic. She has the scars and whatever. And like, it's dirty and her lips are very dry and it looks awful. And she's really pale and it's incredible. And then she barfs pea soup out of her mouth isn't that incredible like isn't it yes movies guys movies movies and they're I amazing love... <laughs> they're amazing and and i love that they did a, a doll for her so she could turn her head around it's not actually her guys it's quick like it's crazy to believe apparently, it, but... she, apparently she didn't do that hmm. imagine having a replica of you that creepy like it's an exact replica of you but that can turn its head around 360 and i always wonder what does it feel to be this actress isn't well, it like sort of shitty? like benke and i like benke looks exactly like me except i can turn my head around 360 degrees mm -hmm. so it's very <laughs> similar to the concept i i know exactly what that's like i mean i can say oh 
Nolan. Oh my god. Oh, he's doing it right now. He's doing it right now. He's she's yeah, completely one second. around. All right. One oh my god. It it just went like completely around. He's doing it again. He's literally doing it twice in a row. Oh my god. Okay. I've stopped. I've stopped performing for you. <laughs> That's all you get today. No. Okay. All right. Tomorrow. I'm surprised. Just, I haven't done I haven't done an impression of a of a of a dead makeup artist yet. Everyone give it up for Nolan's head. Yeah, thank you very but much. But the head might not be much in it, but a lot of talent is in the head itself, you know? Yep. Exactly. The physicality yeah. of the head. Okay. Next up in our classic this is this is a big moment. This is this is a big guy. Big, big, this is a big, big guy. Um uh, this is I don't want to say the biggest one in here because they're all really big, so that's very contestable, but like Rick Baker. It's truly one of those most amazing and well-known for their work um, in the makeup sure. area, not just in horror, but in general makeup. He is the person with the most nominations and the most wins, being 10 nominations and eight wins for the Oscar for makeup, which is also like, you have to understand that this is an Oscar that was invented in 1980, right? So we're talking about his era, right? That's why probably he doesn't, like, it's like he's the best out of his own time, of course. Uh, but probably the best out of all of them. Who knows? <laughs> he's worked on films like Planet of the Apes, which is a Ten Virgin movie, uh, Videodrome <laughs> from Cronenberg, and probably the one he's most, I mean, also the Thriller music video by, from Michael Jackson. And probably his most, I don't know if this is his most well-known, but I would assume it's his most like eye-catching big moment of his career, which would be An American Werewolf in London, which is the iconic sequence of the werewolf, especially that, that sequence right. of the werewolfing of the main character. Oh, <laughs> certainly one of those sequences you watch it you know not only is this going to win the oscar for, for this but it's going to change the way that people look at this mm. sort of like how tim burton's planet of the apes changed the way people thought about drama uh between man and ape on screen literally never done before and never will be done ever again never what a moment before. in history tim burton's planet of the apes <laughs> Um, and you know, thank God least... that the only the only movie in the Planet of the Apes universe is that one. Thank God it's the only one because hey, it really sums up everything yeah. perfectly. I'd hate <laughs> to see anyone try to like you know make a sequel or like even try to try top to top it. it. It would yeah, be even Tim Burton himself was like, be. I can't. I'm gonna. I I can't top my own genius. I recognize. He really this said, as being, "I'm good." Sorry, Planet of the Apes is like one of was another one of Rick Baker's movies that he worked on, and it's one of these right. one of the last. From what I from what I can like tell, it's in this era of like Lord of the Rings, um, in that it's like one of these last movies that um, it was. It, it really feels like it's like the the makeup department was doing a lot of these creature effects, and yeah. it was a very heavy like prosthetics kind of movie. And after that, I mean, even even like with like a few years later with like Peter Jackson's King Kong. Yeah. Just something like or just like Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, another Rick Baker film. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is Is that a laugh I hear, Benke? No, nothing. Oh my god. You... Okay. Great. You know, I, I was sorry. just making sure that you weren't gonna batch Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. 
I had no idea. Wait, can I, I had no idea that Tim Burton had directed Planet of the Apes. That's incredible. I always thought he was like kind of a, like a whatever director, but I love, love this movie. Like that is incredible. I would never have guessed those were prosthetics. Like th- that is incredible. And like James Franco is incredible in that movie. It's like one of his best performances. Yeah. Uh, as well as Andy Serkis as Caesar, you know? Yeah, again, mm-hmm. just Tim Burton's genius. Tim Burton, thank you, Tim Burton, for, for Andy, for Andy, I mean, you practically birthed Andy Serkis if you really think about it. It's and, true, um, it's true. And, like, obviously, Tim Burton's efforts in training thousands of apes, like, thousands, like, personally thousands. training them with, like, just... Like shit, like just like giving them food yeah. when they did a trick, you know, did thousands of them train them to ransack not only the city of San Francisco, but I mean, have you seen the progression of these movies? The world, you know, they we just have took to admit the there was thing. a little, there was a little bit of nepotism going on, or should we say, apetism, because mm. <laughs> most of those apes uh, were descendants of the apes in 2001. So they definitely had had that training before Tim Burton came in. But Tim Burton did a commendable job for what he did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's a very hands-on job, mm. you know? Yeah. Sure. What, what makeup artist were we I talking about? Who owns those apes now? You know? Where are they? Um, they're, the Louvre they're, in Paris. Uh, oh, right. Seb, they're oh, running, Paris. they're running free. They are practically they run running free. the world, you know? Right. Sorry, but back to back to Rick Baker. You know, not only is he like putting, he's he's done crazy work for for like modern modern horror movies and the iconic makeup looks for them. But he's done, he's worked in comedy as well. He's worked in um, in Coming to America, and <laughs> most recently, quote unquote, recently Norbit. I mean just like like the practical effects like makeup department movie for purely like comedic purposes but like still or even like men in black as well like which is like a movie that's i mean it is it is like has all these like crazy monsters in it but none of them are there to scare you or it's not it's like the farthest thing from a horror movie it's like meant for for yourself Benke, speak for yourself. And right, Benke, the best one of all, Batman Forever. He did this. Batman. Was he, he was Batman there. Forever. Batman. Batman Forever. <laughs> I simply Pretty. know nothing about Batman Forever. Uh, uh, I've seen you it. You need to tell me you've never seen, you, you know, you, you are aware of the cultural implication of Tommy Lee Jones as Harvey Dent Two Face. <laughs> are you this... aware that all. <laughs> Are you aware that every uh, villain in Batman lore cannot even begin to touch Jim Carrey as the Riddler, because Jim Carrey's entire existence is a riddle? You can't, you can't, you can't touch it. His costume, the green with the black question marks. I mean, it simply doesn't get any better than that. Jim, I mean, Jim, he practically created it. Like, thank you. Oh my God! Wait, we should have brought on. We should have brought on my professor for this for this video. <laughs> it's okay because <Why? laughs> the guy who did the VFX for, yeah. for, the, for Batman Returns teaches at USC it's okay we'll talk about uh, no no we'll do, my, my we'll screenwriting do... professor she wrote Batman Forever 
Oh my god, I forgot about that. We could have totally That's done insane. that. That's Fuck. insane. Janet, how do you feel about Batman Forever? Well, I wrote it, so okay, thank you. <laughs> good, yeah, that good was movie. Janet. To our next artist. <laughs> that was <laughs> Janet. Moving on to our, our next makeup artists, um, Adobe Photoshop. Hmm. I mean, she's amazing. She's one of the best <laughs> artists out there. I knew she's the so work she I've, too. I've heard she's the really so the beauty who created the beasts, you know? Yeah, and the beasts are um, YouTube playlists. <laughs> and the beauty is Adobe Photoshop that created the memes that are on YouTube playlists now. What's the last word on, um, on Rick Baker? Um, we didn't really talk I about Rick Baker at all. I we really mentioned... talked about Tim Burton. Yeah, I, I mean, again, not to direct every single conversation I have about movies to Tim Burton, but I feel like I kind of have to, because I would say... created movies, so it's fair. Kind of created movies, you know. you know, he's everywhere you go, everywhere you look, I see it's just Tim Burton, especially, especially in October. You know, I think yeah. from looking at this incredibly extensive career that Rick Baker has had, I mean, he's, he's worked on... What, what Seb mentioned at the beginning is like only a few of like one of the many movies he's working. He worked on, he worked on as like an assistant to um, uh, Dick Smith on The Exorcist. He worked as uh, like just as Dick Smith. Dick Smith. <laughs> oh yes, Dick Smith, of course. Do you mean the one who put tissue on, on Marlon Brando's cheeks? Yeah, exactly. Him. No, and yes. you mean, yes. you mean entrepreneur dick smith which is actually the first <laughs> the first dick smith that comes right. oh google oh when yeah you, him, him, you look him. Up wow oh my god google thank you he's uh Rick okay Baker google has... google is responsible for the erasure of people below the line <laughs> that's mm. it it's all google's fault yeah this, thank you google for letting us make this podcast <laughs> um and he was an assistant on Star Wars. He was. He Which, worked on Star. It had Man. to be. It. They're all related. All the people we talk about are related. Everyone. Everyone another. has been. Everyone. It's all. It's all intertwining with each other. He's worked it's the on the below the line cinematic universe. <laughs> the below the line <laughs> theory. We talk. We talk about the same five movies. We both Orange. Anybody? <laughs> Anybody want to watch Clockwork Orange right now? Let's cancel the podcast. Let's watch a Clockwork Orange and let's <laughs> put up with Corpse Bride. Corpse Bride today. Uh, Corpse Bride now so. and then Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. I mean, he's done. He he's done a Gremlins movie. He's done. I mean, he's done like it's some uh, John Carpenter stuff, and he even most recently worked on the Hellboy movie. Not not the super recent Hellboy movie, but Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy movie, which also right. ex- it features extensive practical um, makeup. Um, but I do think Rick Baker's shining achievement is his work in Edward for creating the makeup look for Bella Lugosi and transforming Martin Landau into Bela Lugosi, which, right. you know, Martin Landau exactly. did win an Oscar for that performance, but it, like a lot of it is going to the look and how, right. how just how much work was clearly put into making that just look as exactly like Bela Lugosi as possible. And it's, it's really incredible. And I think he won an Oscar for that. You know, it's only fair that we talked about The Shape of Water and Hellboy. <laughs> <laughs> to Guillermo del Toro movies. 
uh, to segue into our last two makeup artists because we also want to talk about some working right now because Rick Baker is retired. Anyways, <laughs> it's only fair <laughs> that we talk about Guillermo del Toro because the, the last two people we're going to talk about have worked with Guillermo del Toro uh, a lot and probably because of their most notable work. And their names are Monserribe and David Martí. And they are Spanish, a Spanish married couple that worked have worked together on multiple Pedro Almodovar movies such as Talk to Her, Bad Education, The Skinny Living, and as well with Guillermo del Toro for The Devil's Backbone, Hellboy 2, Crimson Peak, and for the one they won their Oscars for, Pan's Labyrinth, which is a beautiful, yes. beautiful film. Yep. Yes. Yep. Let's give a shout out to Pan's Labyrinth. Just one of the foundational fable movies, childhood movies. Absolutely breathtaking. Kind of everything movies. Yeah, just one of the best movies in general. 2006 when that movie came out. I'm Probably, asking yeah. myself why, why yes, The Departed beat sure Pan's Labyrinth for Best Picture. <laughs> How could The Departed have won? when Pan's Labyrinth was released to a general right audience. Right there. And which movie's in Criterion now? You know what I mean? So who got the last laugh? Guillermo del Toro, in, in our world, in our modern day world of declining usage of practical effects, not factor, of practical makeup effects, um, he's kind of maintained it. You know, he seems to be one of the few people that um, because of his history and his relationship to these movies that Jack Pierce worked on and his admiration for them and his understanding of how important the practical makeup effects were in those movies for him. He understands that it's an art that needs to be kept up with and not just disregarded and just put right into just like, oh, well, let's just CGI the whole thing. You know, he really seems to understand the importance of it and he really accentuates that that importance in all of his movies by just just showcasing all of the work that these makeup artists did in his movie it's it's very as much as much as it is his movie his movies are about the monsters in his movies and in that sense they are accentuating the work of his makeup department for just just like this the of like the practical work that they did on the series and yeah spoken i love how guillermo del toro has created his own like brand of monsters now it's like completely different from what is happening like it's it's a combination of horror but also monsters but also drama you know, like a, in a very distinct Del Toro way, you know, like a Del Toro movie is just a Del Toro movie and that is incredible. And I think it's unfair to talk about his movies without David Martí and Monse Rivet because they did a fucking incredible job. <laughs> like just look at fucking Pan's Labyrinth. Who has not had a nightmare here with the pale man? Like mm. that is an achievement to have made every single exactly. person in the like in the planet <laughs> have a nightmare with what you created. Amazing. I, I feel like Seb, we need to let you go off a little bit because I think Pan's Labyrinth is it not like your favorite movie of all time, or <laughs> certainly very, very much on your Mount Rushmore? 
It is, it is, it is, I, I don't know anymore. It was my favorite movie for a long time. Now I think I've like, th- these last few months, I've been like, maybe it's not my favorite movie, but it does have like a very dear place still, just because it, for a long time, it was like the thing. And it was a movie that I watched and I was like, what the fuck? this is cinema, you know, like, this is, this is movie, this is a movie, you know, and this was before it was, it was before it even was someone interested in movies as, I mean, as a career, I I mean, I I go to the movies a lot, and my my dad loves movies, so I, I would watch a lot of movies, but this was even before I became obsessed, like, in my own terms with movies, you know, that was, which is sure. funny, that this movie didn't push me into that. It's like something, I don't know why I didn't kept going, but at that time I was more of a literature kid, <laughs> um, reading very fine prose, prose by um, the great masters of... Um, Jeff Kinney's Diary of Wimpy Kid. You by, can say, by Jeff, you can yes, say Jeff Kinney. Yes. That you can I say was Robert gonna, Rules, you can say The Long Haul, you can say Dog Days. Those are all I was gonna, like I was gonna say, I was gonna say Cabin Fever. I was gonna say John Green, but I oh. forgot his name. John oh. Green. Yeah. Oh. John I mean, Green and Jeff Kitty got nothing other YA novelists. Um but Pan's wow. Labyrinth. I just love there's something I just I was never never in my life ha- had I been moved as much for, by a movie. That's like, it's not even like a mystery. It's not even, I just love the fucking movie because it fucking made me cry. <laughs> but it was also a movie that fucking made me scared. It was a movie that fucking made me odd. It was a fucking movie that made me angry. I'm, I'm tripping over my words, but I was like, I, I experienced all the emotions there is. And it was like, it was truly magical. And I'm also a sucker for the children's perspective in movies. And especially when they're like, sure. within uh hostile environment i am a sucker for Mm. those movies (laughs) and pin's labyrinth is like in my opinion the best one out of them all if not one of the best ones because it just does it beautifully and it's a very adult fairy tale like everyone says Mm -hmm. it's very true and that is the reason why i love pin's labyrinth so much it's just magnificent it's simple it's and it's it's i do sense you since you were talking about childhood films in hostile environments. This isn't as hostile of an environment, but Spirit of the Beehive, I've been thinking about it all episodes just because it's a great Spanish film from 1973. Uh, and it's about a little girl who watches Frankenstein when there's this old, there's this old print of Frankenstein that comes to their village uh, and they all watch it together. And this little girl, rightfully so, is just freaked out by this watching Frankenstein in the, you know, in the village, in a church or where the common area, wherever they see it. And so for the rest of the film, she's like grappling with so many things. It's a post-war society. She's grappling with her family, but she's also like grappling with how disturbed she was by this movie. And it, that the movie itself like forces her to upend her own childhood. Very interesting film. And again, since we were talking about the Universal Monster movies and, and their effect on pop culture, just look at its effect all the way in, in, in Spain, making an entire film, a dramatic film about a child who sees Frankenstein and it changes their perspective on on life and death. Now that while well, you were saying that, I've like I've even think thought about like how good it is to end on Monserribe and David Martí, just because they kind of are one example of how 
film can be a globalized medium. You know, there is Spanish filmmakers that got hired by a Mexican filmmaker, which got them to success in Hollywood. You know, <laughs> it's a very good example of how international film can I mean, be and how- No, it's about, you're, you're absolutely right. And especially modern day, and again, we're talking about monsters this whole episode and what monsters represent in horror films of, of the unknown and the outside. And again, the, the globalization of film now is one of the most special things to happen uh, with a digital revolution, the digital age uh, with movies. Um, just like in terms of recognition of people who maybe not have been recognized, uh, which again, our podcast loves when people go unrecognized normally, uh, finally receive that recognition, very overdue. Um, but again, just what you were talking about, the, the unknown, the outside, the unseen. Um, and we've seen that from all the artists we've talked about today. Um, I think they're also really good, really good to like end our podcast on because I think they represent um, the right way I think makeup and horror should be heading toward in, in the future. You know, they kind of prove that, you know, they they remind you, especially in movies like Pan's Labyrinth, which is like like meant to really scare you. Like it's it, like a lot like the, these practical makeup effects are meant to scare you. It like the movie is a reminder as to like how why it is important to preserve it because of its impact it can have on you. You know, it's impactful because of how like physical it feels on screen and that is something that I feel like people kind of forget when, you know, it's so much easier, uh, you know, money-wise and material-wise to just do it on a computer. You know, you can, it's a lot quicker, um, it's cheaper, I'm sure, it's a lot less energy and time consuming, but you're missing, it's, it's missing this physicality and in the end, the heart of these like makeup artists who are spending hours working on something physical that you're seeing on screen. And these kind of these these people remind us why it is important to preserve. Labyrinth. But like Pants Labyrinth wouldn't be Pants Labyrinth without its makeup and without David Martí and Monse Rive. If it, it yeah. like part of why the movie is so magical it's because you can, it feels so tangible, at least to me. I can't imagine mm -hmm. looking at the fawn or looking at the pale man and seeing CGI instead of them. And especially 2006's <laughs> CGI, you know, like it would be completely, it would be taken away from the movie. You know, I, I would become aware that I'm watching a movie, you know, but by making mm -hmm. it a practical effect, it just manages to get something very riveting and so mm -hmm. incredible and magical. Yeah. It's like it immerses me in the world. And I'm not saying that makeup, practical makeup effects are inherently better than CGI because what you can do with CGI is also magnificent. It's just that we should value the addition they give to movies, you know, and how much they make the difference, honestly. Like, whether a monster is scary or not is going to depend largely on the makeup of the monster, you know? 
it's the time to announce next episode's focus. We'll be talking about drum roll, please. Wait, I forgot his name. You Paul Hirsch. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I don't have it written down. I'm sorry. I know what he did. <laughs> yes, Paul Hirsch, film editor of many Brian De Palma movies and first two Star Wars movies and some some Joe Schumacher movies and some John Hughes movies. Uh, we're very and excited. some um, and some um, Mission Impossible as well, I believe. It's a Mission Impossible and mission, editor, mission of, editor of one of the greatest movies ever made. And it's not even a joke. This is not a joke. You no. shit here. One of the greatest movies ever made. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Directed by it is. <laughs> okay. It is. Why are you laughing, Seb? Why are I'm you kidding. laughing? This, we are talking, we're the, talking the, legendary. The most, the most three recent Mission Impossible movies are among the greatest action films ever made. I'm mostly excited for us all to revisit Blowout, the 1981 De Palma film, which is about editing. I, so it's very appropriate. Yes. I, um, exactly. but yes. I would Thank give you. so much to be back there for the first time. Yes. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Yeah, thank you Ready? for listening. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Stop, stop trying to take the, 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 Sorry. the, the, the spotlight. Bang <laughs> uh, Thank you for listening. We'll see you guys in two weeks. And, and gals and um, non-binary folk people. And everything in between. Thank you. Yeah, everything in between. Or outside of everything. Um, see you next week. And we'll see you the music now. Bye.